Hey everybody, welcome to episode 258 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited to be back with you after a little break around some holiday travel. I'll have an episode for you this week and then another one next week before taking a two-week break around Christmas and New Year's, then I'll be back in the new year starting the week of January 10th. I'm excited about this episode because it's some content that I've actually been thinking about for more than a year now, and I'll talk about my inspiration for this episode in a moment. But I've got some intro topics to get to from my last episode, episode 257, where I talked about junk miles, which, by the way, was a highly controversial, might be a fair word, highly controversial episode. I got lots of feedback on all sides about my thoughts on junk miles, and I appreciate everybody who sent me messages. I am going to cover off on one reader email about that today that I think captures some of the sentiments that were shared with me. But first, I have to personally apologize for overlooking one of the big stories of the New York City Marathon, and I have to give a shout out to listener Stephen for raising this to me. But as I was scolding the media for not talking about Elkina Quebec, the Kenyan-born, naturalized U.S. citizen who was the first American on the day, finishing fourth. I neglected to mention the third American on the day, finishing just seconds behind Ben True. His name is Nathan Martin, and he happens to be the fastest ever American-born black man to run the distance that is the marathon. And honestly, I did not know his story well in many ways. I think it affirms my position that the media does a poor job covering athletes of color, but that is no excuse for me. I should have known his story and his name, and I didn't, and I neglected to call that out. I can tell you I'm doing my best to make amends by mentioning it now, but also he's going to be our guest for next week on the Clean Sport Collective podcast, so you're going to get to hear his story in more depth if you pop over there next Monday. I'll be interviewing him with Kara Goucher this week. So check that out. He is, again, the fastest American-born black man to ever cover 26.2 miles. And his story is a good one. It's a fascinating one. It's an inspiring one, but it hasn't been told enough. So we're going to do our part on that forum to do so. Thanks to Stephen for calling me out. I do my best to always admit where I made a mistake. And in this case, I, I had a big oversight, and I appreciate the admonition, and we'll do better as we move forward. So that's one note. Also wanted to mention a reader email that I got on the topic of junk miles that I think captured some of the sentiments that I got from those that were listening. So I'll read this to you. And this is from one of our Danish listeners who happens to hail from Copenhagen. Thanks for sending this over. Jonas, he says, I think that when people talk about junk miles, they're talking about miles that simply by virtue of the pace and effort and maybe the distance do not increase fitness, regardless of whether you can recover from them and even if they don't deviate from a specific workout. Do you think miles slash runs like that exist? In other words, are there effort levels and runs that in and of themselves are pretty much useless, regardless of where you put them in your training plan? Or is that impossible to say without looking at the bigger picture? Also, I don't quite get why deviating from the purpose of a workout would necessarily turn it all the way into junk miles. Can't you sometimes get a good or even great workout by going off script? 
as long as you listen to your body's signals, of course. As a self-coached runner, I do this all the time and often find it very satisfying. I run with this informal running group in Copenhagen, and often I will decide last minute what workout to do so I can run with the group at the track, which is way more fun. I always try to find something that makes sense in relation to what I'm working on, of course, but I feel like that could be many different things on a given day. So that's the question from Jonas. Lots of things to unpack there. First on his first question is that are there just implicit objective runs that I could point to at a certain pace or effort that would be considered purely worthless regardless of the context? And I don't think I can. I think my perspective on it is that there can be a purpose behind any form of movement. Sometimes even walking can be productive in the context of a training cycle if it's meant to create blood flow and healing. And so without that bigger picture, without understanding the goals of the individual athlete and the individual training plan, I think you could probably find that any manner of run and any manner of pace run could fit into someone's plan, into someone's approach depending on the varying contexts that we may have living out there. So no, I don't think that there are just single types of runs or pace of runs that I can point to that would be useless across the board. I think you answered that question for me in a sense, but I agree that the big picture still matters and that most likely any run can fit into someone's plan depending on what they're gearing up for and what their goals are and where they came from in their context. On to your second question. You are basically questioning the hard line I drew around work being something that you can't recover from or if it doesn't have a specific purpose on the day or you're going outside of that purpose. And I think that... I'm going to answer that question in two ways. First of all, when you talk about being self-coached, Jonas, and making those adjustments on the day in order to sync up with a group, that can make sense and can still, even in that improvisation, fit into the purpose of what you're doing. So in the context of a one or two week period, if you know you have to get into a certain type of work and it has flexibility about where it can fit in order to build towards your ultimate goal and you make some of those real-time adjustments so that you can actually do the workout with a group. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because essentially you're flexible around where those runs fit in order to achieve the purpose of the day. And it's not necessarily that you're going completely off script or to use a baseball analogy here from the US, going way out into left field on some of those runs. I, I would suspect that most likely many of those workouts sync up with the purpose of what you should be doing in the context of your build. But if it doesn't, and that doesn't build you towards your goal, would there be some ancillary benefit? Potentially, but it wouldn't necessarily be synced up with your goal. And I'm a big believer in the idea of periodization, that every run in the context of a training cycle does have a purpose. And then when you step outside of those boundaries, that it would still be considered junk miles. Now, I will make some notes and caveats to that part of the discussion. And one is this idea that you have to do a specific workout. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, if your coach 
gave you a workout that worked a certain system, but you did another workout that worked that same system because you were able to do it with a group, that would that would be considered down the middle of the fairway of the decisions that I'm talking about. You'd still be achieving the purpose on the day, and so it's not necessarily about doing a very specific workout as prescribed. It's about making sure that that workout achieves the purpose that is the building block for the day. Another thing I would mention here is that there are times, especially in the context of the group training that I provide, where there is flexibility within the training and within the framework. And I might have 50 plus athletes with me on a given morning and it doesn't make sense to have 50 workouts. Those athletes might all be training for races on different days. And so generally I'm giving them two or three workouts that make sense for the context of each of the different quote tracks of training that I might have represented in the group. And so I might be maybe sub-optimizing slightly around the very perfect workout for everybody so that they can do it in a group and likely get more benefit out of it because of that group accountability and that energy that comes with doing it from a group. So I'm not talking about those types of adjustments where you're staying in the fairway of the purpose of the day. Now I'm using golf analogies. I don't know why, but I'm talking about things that are completely tangential to the purpose of the day that that would be counter to the purpose of the day. So if you're doing a very, very high end 5k speed workout three weeks out from your marathon, will you get some training benefit from that? Sure. But Could it derail and completely mess up your marathon? Absolutely. And so, yes, those to me would be considered junk miles. And so those are some caveats there. I think what you're doing, Jonas, is that you're using your framework, you're you're exercising freedom within your framework so that you can get the benefit of the group training and choosing those workouts that still fit within the framework so that you can actually get the benefit of the group. And that makes total sense to me. But if you were to do something counter or completely tangential to the purpose of your given training block, then that's when I would consider it junk miles. I will also add that there's a time and a place to be rigorous about your training and a time and a place to be less rigorous. We all need those periods of time where we're we're running, we're perhaps doing workouts, but without a given purpose or maybe a specific race goal. And so in those situations, we have more freedom to exercise some of that flexibility so that we can stay motivated and keep it fresh. And if that means jumping in with a group of friends that are doing something, quote, random for you, then I'm all for that. So I hope some of those comments will will help clarify the answer to that question and also to some of the other questions that I had. But I appreciate you listening, Jonas, all the way from across the pond, and I appreciate the question very much. Okay, now I want to tee up my main topic for th- for today, and I have to tell you a little bit of a story about where this came from. It actually, the genesis of this episode and other future episodes that I will do like this has to do with my sabbatical that I took last year. And during that sabbatical, I was, I was 
free of my normal rogue duties, my normal podcasting duties. And as I discussed on some of the follow-up episodes to that, I let my curiosity dictate what I was looking at, what I was reading, what I was watching, and I was just trying to follow my curiosity. And if that took me to a random place, so be it. And so for me, it did actually take me to a little bit of a random place. And I was absolutely fascinated. I think I mentioned this in my episode coming back from the sabbatical, but I was absolutely fascinated to watch a documentary about Taylor Swift and her album Folklore. Folklore is the album, the first album that she released during the pandemic that was a surprise to everyone, including her fans and her record label that was inspired by her time in lockdown. And it went completely counter to her prior traditional roots in pop and country and surprised everybody, but was also the number one album of the year for streaming and a pretty pretty damn good album if I do say so myself. I am not, I probably wouldn't consider myself an all-out Swifty, but I do appreciate her music and I do happen to believe that she's a, a lyrical genius. And so I watched this documentary on her and there's a few out there, but this is the one I'm going to specifically talk about. It was called Folklore, The Long Pond Studio Sessions. Folklore, The Long Pond Studio Sessions. You can only stream it on Disney Plus, but it was after the pandemic had settled down at least enough where she could get together with her producer and some of her her co-musicians and co-writers on the album. She got together at Long Pond Studio in upstate New York and recorded the sessions, actually recorded the music in person for the first time, whereas during the pandemic it had all been done remotely and as a part of that she and her other partners on the album also talked about the inspiration for the music and in particular Taylor Swift gave us a perspective on her inspiration for all for many of the lyrics and to me it was absolutely a fascinating window into the picture of someone who is a genius at what they do and that to me is absolutely fascinating this album was a departure for Taylor in many ways from her prior music, not just in style, but also in the fact that she chose to tell stories that actually were not about herself, that were not autobiographical, whereas most of her prior music was all focused on stories from her own life, experiences and feelings from her own life. But in this album, appropriately called Folklore, she steps steps outside of that and tells the stories of others, including fictional characters that have been living in her head and the thing that struck me among many things in general is this idea that music makes us feel music makes us feel and the power of music is the fact that all of us collectively can listen to a song and it can 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 bring on and and cause the the same emotions in all of us so that we can connect to it from our unique perspectives, but in a collective, in a community that feels palpable. And also, of course, we all may connect to the music in a different way. Some people may pick out certain things from a song and others may pick out different emotions and latch onto that as a form of understanding and comfort. But these songs become a reflection of ourselves in many ways. And they 
They show us that we're normal because we have feelings and emotions that are spoken about, that are sung about in music like that of Taylor Swift. And again, even if you have a unique perspective on a song or if it brings out unique feelings and emotions in you, you still likely have someone out there of the millions that listen that actually comes at it to comes to that song from a similar perspective. And then this is also a way for you to connect to an artist, somebody who seems untouchable, someone who is a genius of sorts, who is at the highest level in their game because you can connect with the feelings and emotions that they've shared through the lyrics. And that creates a bond with the artist that is palpable in addition to the bond with other listeners who might be experiencing the song in similar ways to you. And so I've known that about music for a long time, but for whatever reason, this documentary actually made that concept about music really palpable for me. And, And then it got me thinking... That night after I watched the documentary, I actually didn't sleep much because I just laid, lie awake thinking about my my thoughts and feelings from watching what I had seen. And it took me back to running in a sense that running can be a mirror just like music can be a mirror. It can show us feelings and emotions that are real, that are palpable, that we can use to connect with others and the magic of something like the marathon distance or the half marathon distance is that we can feel the same emotions and feelings as someone else. And we can feel the same emotions and feelings as that elite athlete. They suffer like we suffer over 26.2 miles. And so it creates this community experience around running that to me actually became very similar to what I was seeing and experiencing from music via that documentary. And that was just this sort of aha moment that we don't do a good enough job of telling the stories of those feelings and emotions that we feel. And those feelings and emotions are, they, they span the spectrum. Some are quote positive and some are quote challenging to deal with, but we're talking about pain, suffering, doubt, anxiety. We're talking about fear talking about defeat and on the other side the positive side we're talking about triumph and peace and clarity and feelings of elation and happiness and joy and so many other things that come to us by the simple act of moving one foot in front of the other and daring along the way to chase big goals while doing it And the magic of that is that it's a mirror on our own lives that extends beyond, that provides applications that extend beyond the running, but also it's a, it creates this palpable ability to connect with others who are having those same experiences and feelings and emotions, regardless of their pace, regardless of where they are in the pack, regardless of whether they're front, back, or middle. And that is what is to me so magical about our sport. But again, we don't do a good job of talking about those feelings and emotions of putting quote labels on it so that people can start to relate and understand in a collective way. And so I'm going to be doing some episodes. It's going to start with this one where I simply talk about two feelings and emotions. And 
I'm hoping to extend this to be a mini audio series on its own that somebody could use for inspiration. But again, we're talking about feelings that hurt and we're talking about those, those positive feelings, those feelings and emotions that lift you up. So today in this episode, and I'll do the same in an episode next week, talking about two different emotions. I want to talk about pain and triumph, pain and triumph. And a big part of these discussions, and there'll kind of be too many parts on each emotion. One part is just talking about it, just giving you my personal experiences on those feelings and emotions, just putting labels and talking about the types of those emotions and and experiences. And then talking about processing it. So talking about it just as it is, observing it, and then talking about processing it in whatever form, and in some cases moving past. And I'm going to talk about my experience as an athlete myself and as a coach in helping people do that. And we're talking today again about two of the biggest emotions you could possibly feel and that are so palpable in the context of these long-distance races. We're talking about pain. We're talking about triumph. We'll talk first about pain. And before I dig in on pain, I want to acknowledge that in the context of our world, in the context of um, how of how I'm going to be talking about this, pain in many ways is a privilege. Pain in many ways is a privilege. We sign up for it. We put ourselves in the place. We ask for it. We want it at some level because we know it will sharpen us. It will show us our limits and allow us to push past. And so this is different than someone who might be facing pain that they can't control. And, you know, that is a separate and distinct world and challenge that in many ways is is unfair. And so I just want to make that distinction that we're not talking about that pain that's out of our control. We're talking about the pain, the privilege of experiencing the pain in the context of a half marathon or marathon or even a shorter race like a 5K that is in our control, that we sign up for, that we ask for. And we don't always, I guess, at the most specific and direct level, choose all the types of pain that we get to feel when we might experience it through running, especially as it relates to injury. But we get to step to that place. We put ourselves in that position. And I'm not wishing an injury on anyone by all means. But again, I'm just trying to create a distinction between this pain that is a privilege that we sign up for versus pain that many face and suffer outside of our context that have no control or maybe no power over it. So let's talk first about pain and what it looks like. And I want you, as I discuss pain, I want you to think about some of your own experiences. I would love you to share them with me, but I can promise you if you're someone who's striving for big goals, regardless of the distance you're racing, at the endurance level, then you have felt and experienced pain. All of us have. No one is immune. And again, it's something that we ask for in many ways, but it's still an obstacle to overcome. So I'm just going to talk to you about some of my experiences with pain. And I don't have clear and clean labels for you here, but I just wanted to recognize and acknowledge that there are different types of pain. 
there are different types of pain and some of it we have more control over than others. I'll start with, to me, one of the most challenging and debilitating forms of pain, which was the pain that I experienced inside the 2016 Boston Marathon when I had to stop. I had a pain that was so extreme in my left heel that I knew if I continued to run on it that something bad would happen, that some sort of permanent damage. And at the time, I didn't know what that was because I didn't really know what the issue was. But in that race, I had unknowingly developed a stress fracture while running, or at least my bones crossed over the edge to a stress fracture. And I had this excruciating pain in my heel that felt like that Either I was going to tear my Achilles or fracture my heel bone in some way as I was running. And so when I stopped to walk to see if that would abate the pain and started again, I knew I knew in my core that I shouldn't be running. That I, if I did, I could cause permanent damage. And so I made the decision to stop. I walked the final five miles of that race, ended up with a personal worst in the marathon on that day. But I was given so much in terms of my experiences on that day. And that's a topic for another day, but it ended up being a memory that I'm actually very fond of now. But I've had that type of pain where I had to stop. I've also had a pain in in a race in 2005 where I my only marathon DNF, where I had to drop out at mile 18 because I had this overwhelming physical exhaustion where my body just shut down. And while that was a different kind of pain than the heel and Achilles pain that forced me to stop, it was another type of pain that told me at my core that I needed to walk off that course, that I wasn't going to do myself any favors and that I could dig an even deeper hole if I didn't stop. And so That was and is my only marathon DNF because I believed then and I believe now that I made the right decision to listen to that pain and to walk off that course. So that's one type of pain that you may have experienced. There's another type of pain on the other side, which is that lower grade pain that we kind of expect from marathons that is there that you expect that you face maybe in different forms in every race, depending on the challenges of that race. But it's a pain that you have control over, that you can have dominion over, that you can push through. I'll never forget in my 2018 marathon in Houston, which is still my PR to this day, at mile 16 of that race, I was struggling Physically, I had this type of pain in a way early in the marathon that I hadn't experienced. And I remember telling myself, this is going to be the hardest 10 miles I've ever run. But I had dominion over that pain. I overcame it because it was that sort of low level grinding pain that while difficult and while sometimes you do maybe succumb to it, it is a pain that you can control, that you can have dominion over. And you can have dominion by exercising some of the tips that I'll talk about later. I've had another kind of pain in marathons, which is sort of an overwhelming pain, one that that you can't have dominion over, that you're in many ways powerless against. 
that you can fight and you can certainly push and you can try not to quit and you can give still everything you have, but you can't control the impact that it might have on your pace. I experienced that in the 2018 CIM marathon where I was feeling great through about 21 miles in the last five. I just had this debilitating tightness and weakness in my glutes and hamstrings that just wouldn't allow me to go. I had no dominion over that pain, even though I tried to fight it with everything that I could. I also experienced that pain in in this year's Boston Marathon. When I got to mile 18 after the second Newton Hill, and suddenly my legs, and this wasn't one particular body part, but my legs actually had a full meltdown from calves to quads to hamstrings to glutes to even my abs. They were experiencing this fatigue unlike anything I've ever experienced in a race, and it was all I could do just to run about a minute slower than my target for the rest of that race and hold it together the best that I could. And that's what I did, but I had no dominion over my ability to maintain maintain pace under the, the depth of that pain. There's also emotional pain that we might face in races. I can tell you that in that race in Boston where I had to walk the last five miles, I went through a lot of emotional pain. I think I managed to go through the full emotions associated with grieving the loss of my goal on that day. I had anger. I had denial. I had disappointment. I had sadness. I experienced it all as I walked those five miles of those last five miles of the Boston Marathon. And so that emotional pain for me in that experience, even inside the race, was palpable. I also experienced it this year in Boston when I knew that that my goals were well out the window and that I had no control over my ability to finish other than just to give my best. And I experienced those feelings then of disappointment and grieving the loss of what I had hoped for on that day. And so that emotional pain went with the physical pain that I was facing in the final miles of that race. There's also another pain, which is the pain of doing something new. And I know all beginner runners or even people that are getting back into running, perhaps after a break or injury, when you're experiencing the pain of training again for the first time, or maybe you're experiencing some things in training that you've never done, you're you're pushing yourself and tackling workouts that you've never faced, or maybe you're running paces that you've never run, and you start to dip into pain unlike anything you've experienced. It's It's obviously recognizable as pain, but perhaps you don't understand it the way you understand pain that you faced before. And so you're faced with this uncertainty around it about how to deal with it in the context of those moments, that new pain, that fresh pain, that what is this, what's happened to me, happening to me kind of pain. And I'm telling you, I know I'm at one level of the spectrum in terms of degrees of fast here, but I hope that all levels of the spectrum can relate to some of the things I'm talking about because I believe firmly that everyone, regardless of their degree of fast, will face those types of pain. And then, of course, there's others I'm not talking about, perhaps, and perhaps versions of pain that you might label for yourself that 
I can't label for you because I haven't experienced it in the way that you have. But there is definitely a connecting thread of we all know pain when it comes. We all know that suffering when it comes and it might come in different forms and you might have different levels of ability to control it, but we all recognize it for what it is. And so those are some types of pain that we face. And by the way, I haven't mentioned the fact that the pain you face in a marathon is different than the pain you face in a 5K. I was talking recently with one of my athletes who trains with our virtual podcast group and the Renegades, and he actually went and ran a 1,500-meter race on the track, a relay for the very first time, and he talked about the pain that he experienced in that 1,500-meter race that was unlike anything he experienced in the marathon when he ran one of those last summer. And so, so you might experience it differently. You might have different experiences with pain depending on the distance you're chasing, but we all know it's there. We all know it's fundamentally the same thing in one form or another. And so I just wanted to spend a moment giving us a little bit of a tribute to those varying pains that we might face. And then I want to talk a little bit and I'll have more depth on this as we go through the podcast about how to process some of these difficult emotions. So I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list. And some of these things I've talked about before you'll recognize, but I want to now talk about how do we deal with pain? How do we deal with pain? The first tip I would have for you is to acknowledge it, to notice it, to observe it, to quote, play with it in the context of that experience when it comes, because that's the way that we will learn. That's the way that we will process. And even if you don't get it perfectly right in your response in the moment, you'll be able to process it better and then come back to that type of pain with perhaps a stronger response. But I just encourage you to acknowledge it in the moment. And as a part of acknowledging it, don't beat yourself up about it. Don't beat yourself up about it. I think for whatever reason, sometimes we carry the burden of pain like it's somehow our fault, so to speak, at least directly. I mean, and yes, I said pain is a privilege. We're stepping into this, but it's not your fault if you're experiencing it in whatever form. It's it's not something to, quote, take personally or to attach to your identity, I guess, is the best way to put it. And so we have to separate the the feelings of pain from our identity by just simply observing what we're feeling and not beating ourselves up about it, not necessarily trying to solve it in the moment. And I know we're talking about perhaps instances of feelings as we go through this, but if you were to figuratively step back from that experience in the moment and look at the pain, then I just want you to acknowledge it, observe it, and make sure that it stays separate and distinct from your identity. You may have chosen the path to get into pain, but it is not you. It is not equivalent with your identity. It is not directly a part of you or your fault. So to me, that's an important part of this. And you may or may not, by the way, do this well in the moment, and that's okay. I would acknowledge you after the fact to think about it without 
subjectivity. Just try to objectively think about it. Think about what you're experiencing. Put words around it. Name it maybe as I have so that you can then separate it from your identity and think about what lessons you can maybe take from it in terms of how to deal with it in the moment or how to deal with it when it comes again. And so that's one tip I have for you. Another tip I have for you is to, in those moments of pain, my first line of defense typically is always to, quote, fight it by not fighting it, to relax into it. Fast running is relaxed running. And oftentimes when we're experiencing pain, not all kinds, but oftentimes when we're experiencing pain, it's because we're tight or at least we have an ability to relax into it if we're willing. And so I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I encourage you to have a relaxation protocol where while you're moving, you can literally think from head to toe and relax different parts of your body to try to dissipate what you might be feeling because it will not only focus your mind on something productive, which is those relaxations or meditative concepts, but it will also potentially allow you to dissipate the pain simply by not carrying that stress, anxiety, or whatever may be cropping up. And so use relaxation as a tool. I'll never forget in when I ran the 2013 Bryan College Station Marathon, which was just this past weekend here in Texas. It was a really cold day. It was actually the same weekend that the Dallas Marathon was canceled for the first time in a very long time because of snow and ice in the Dallas area. I was supposed to do Dallas, but I couldn't because they canceled the race, obviously. And so the Bryan College Station Marathon actually last minute the Friday before Sunday race opened up some additional entries, even though it was previously sold out so that those of us who had been stranded from the Dallas race could go do it. And so I did it, but it happened to be a really cold morning. I remember it to be in the low to mid thirties at the start. I was actually wearing beanie, arm sleeves, gloves. I actually had capris on man pre's as I call them. So three quarter length tights and I was not too hot. In fact, I kept most of that on the entire race because the temperatures actually got cooler as we went. But in that race, I had something that has never happened to me before then, had never happened to me before then, or still hasn't happened since, which is that the first eight miles of the race were the harder than the last eight miles of that race. For whatever reason, and I think partially due to the cold weather, I couldn't, my body couldn't warm up. It was having trouble finding rhythm because it was just trying to get the engine going to heat up in the context of those cold conditions. And so I was hitting my paces early, but they felt harder than they should. And I was freaking out a little bit about it, experiencing pain at that point in a marathon that I had never experienced. And so in that race, I did exactly what I'm talking about here. And it And at the time, I was actually a Lululemon ambassador. And so I channeled some of my inner yogi as a part of that race and literally went into moving meditation where I was actually closing my eyes at various parts and trying to relax my body from head to toe and spent about two miles in that space. And then somehow by mile eight or nine or so, my body started to fall into rhythm and everything became effortless again. And I went on to PR on that day to to run a personal best in the marathon. 
And those last eight miles were far easier than the first eight miles. And so in that case, I went towards relaxation and it actually helped. Another tip I talk about is as a part of that, meditating on your purpose, reflecting on why you're doing something and always having that top of mind. I did that actually in the Houston race that I mentioned in 2018 when it started to hurt at mile 16 way earlier than I had hoped. And I was reflecting on my purpose that day. And my purpose that day was actually running as an example for the athletes that I coach. And so I remember over the last 10 miles, literally cycling through mental images of my athletes in my head, not only because I wanted to inspire them, but also because I've been inspired by them and watching some of them give all on race day. And so my last 10 miles were all about cycling those mental images of the runners that I coach. And that helped me stay on pace and gut out a PR on that day. And by 12 seconds, by the way, and what ended up being the hardest 10 miles I've ever run in a marathon. So my purpose kept me on it. Another thing relatedly that I did that day was use my mantras, use my mantras. And I always encourage you, as I've talked about before, to have rhythm mantras for a race, as well as to have fight mantras. Rhythm mantras and fight mantras both help you dissociate from the pain and allow you to focus on something useful and productive, a short word or phrase that's going to keep you focused on the task at hand. And I remember one of my mantras on that day was all about the day. And that this is actually a mantra that came up to me in the moment because it ended up being perfect conditions in Houston in 2018, perfect weather, perfectly flat course. I knew that if I was going to PR, I had to take advantage because everything was lined up for it. And so a mantra of mine at the end became, if not now, win, if not now, win, if not now, win. That was an impromptu mantra, but I've used it since actually in other situations. I also like a mantra that I have directly related to pain, which is when it hurts, push harder. When it hurts, push harder. Because usually when we're in pain, if we slow down or let go, then it doesn't necessarily help. But it does help if you can get to the finish line faster. And so when it hurts, I try to use that as a signal to go faster to push harder to press into the pain instead of succumbing to it and that has proved valuable to me in the past I especially like that one for the 10k distance because it can be hard to concentrate for 6.2 miles at those paces and so those are some examples of how you can use pain the last one I'll talk about kind of comes in that context of the decisions you might make when pain comes, but you can't control it. You can't ultimately have dominion over it. And I talked about two examples. I've talked about the situation where you have no control, but to slow down. I know many people in Chicago this year, because of the conditions on that day with 70 degree plus weather, crazy winds and 90 plus degree humidity, many people ended up in situations where they couldn't control the pain, the conditions won the day. And in those situations, All you can do is press as hard as you can. Reflect on giving 
everything that you can until that finish line, even if it means that the watch doesn't say what you want. And it can be hard to process that type of pressing in the context of triumph or to make it look like triumph, but I'm going to try to do that in a moment. But I can promise you that if you if you give yourself all the way to the end, then you can claim victory on a day, especially if you take lessons from it. And then, of course, there's that pain where you step off the course and you don't have dominion over that. To me, that one's pretty easy because in those moments, you can trust that you did the right thing. Trust your instincts. Most of us are really tough people. And certainly there's a difference between quitting to quit. But when the pain is telling you to stop either physically or through a fatigue like I experienced in 2005, sometimes it's better to stop. And that should be the very rare exception. For me, it's one race out of over 150. But I have no regrets about the decision I made on that day and can use logic to distinctly separate that from my identity on another day. I am not a quitter. I made a smart decision. And I encourage you, if that's been your situation related to pain, then accept that. Take on that identity of that smart athlete who made the right choice, who lived to fight another day. And so those are some of my thoughts on pain. And I know you'll have other examples and other tips for how to deal with it. But to me, that may be one of the most palpable emotions and feelings that we experience, especially over the longer distances. And I wanted to just name it, label it, and then talk about processing it. Next, we're going to finish on a positive note. And I want to talk about triumph. I want to talk about triumph. And I want in many ways to actually redefine how we think about triumph. And I I can tell you that as an athlete myself and as a coach, this season of racing that has had such a varying spectrum of conditions. You know, we've had perfect conditions in the context of our athletes at Indianapolis, at Philadelphia, at CIM, but we've had the worst possible conditions at races like Chicago, something in between in Boston and others that have been hot and humid, even as late as this past weekend, we had an athlete in our podcast group do a race in Kiowa Island with close to 70 degree temperatures at the end and 90 plus degree humidity. So it seems like we live in this world right now that you get one or the other, you get good weather or you get terrible weather and sometimes the weather's going to win. And so it's allowed me by observing this as a coach and by the way, by experiencing it myself as an athlete when I didn't have the race that I wanted at Boston, it's allowed me to rethink how I think about triumph, about victory, about those feelings and emotions that come with triumph and victory. And so I want to, let's talk about that for a second. Let's label that And so again, I'm going to give you some examples of triumph. The most common one I think we think about, and maybe to the exclusion of all others, we think about total victory. We think about total victory. And we label that as the only thing that is triumph. We think about total victory being that 
that situation where everything went perfectly, where you got trained, you did all the work, you got to race day healthy and ready to go, and then everything fell into place and you smashed your goals on race day. I've had a lot of examples of that this fall with athletes where they were able to claim total victory. And believe me, it is satisfying when that happens. It can also be rare at times, especially for the marathon, because we only get so many attempts, so many at-bats, so many swings at it. And when your race happens to have bad conditions, that may not be in the cards for you. And so I want to separate this idea that triumph has to be claimed and can only be claimed when you have that kind of total victory because it's just not accurate. And it, I think, also covers up the richness of what we can feel. It covers up the richness of what we can learn on a given day. So we're going to talk about some other forms of triumph Another form of triumph, I'm going to call this, and I mean this in the most positive sense of the word, I'm going to call this, in, because sometimes we give this phrasing negative connotation, but I want to call it the moral victories. The moral victories. These are situations when perhaps the training results and the racing results don't sync up. The training results and the racing results don't sync up, or maybe, or maybe, the race didn't go perfectly to plan, but you still ran a damn good one and got your goals. These are the situations where maybe you didn't get your goal. Maybe you faded a little bit at the end of the race, but you still got a big PR on the day and training went well and you took big steps forward in training. And so there are the moral victories. And I encourage you to think about those in the most positive sense of that phrasing in every situation you might find yourself racing. Though there are other types of triumph where maybe everything went wrong and where even in the face of everything going wrong, you gave everything you had on that day. This is most palpable for me in that race I mentioned in Boston in 2016 where I walked the last five miles for a big part of that long walk. I felt inadequate. I was struck with with sadness over the fact that I was getting so much love from people on the sideline as I walked close to the security fencing to prevent getting in the way of other runners. And I had so many fans and people cheering in my face, encouraging me to run, encouraging me to go, not knowing my situation, not knowing that I couldn't. And so they were giving their all to me, but I felt like in the moment at times I couldn't give my all back. And so there was severe sadness over that because in most situations in my life, when people are giving me something, I'm able to return the favor in some form. And in that case, it all it would have taken would be to run some easy jog, but I couldn't even do that. All I could do was walk. And as I processed that experience in the moment, by the way, as I got close to the finish line in Boylston, I recognize something and now this is the moniker of the storyline to this day for me as I think back on that race is that I actually was giving my all. My all on that day happened to be walking the last five miles of the Boston Marathon. I could have stepped off 
that course. I thought about it. But for me, it was important to actually finish on that day. And by the way, it was also practical because I don't think I could have gotten to the finish line any faster. And when I was walking, I didn't feel like I was going to permanently debilitate myself. I just felt all of the weight of those emotions. And so I now realize, and I even realized late in that race in the moment as I walked down Boylston, that I did give my all, that I returned the favor. And maybe it wasn't obvious to me or to the fans that were cheering me on, but I gave my all. And and so I have nothing to be redeemed from. From that race, I, I can claim victory and triumph in knowing that that was everything I had on that particular day. And it was ugly by most definitions. And by the way, still my personal worst marathon time. But man, I put everything I had on that course. And there is triumph to be claimed from that. Another one I want to talk about is the triumph of getting knocked down and getting back up. I think many of us, when we think about giving our all, as I just mentioned, we think that that means being 100% in every single second, giving everything and feeling like I'm doing everything I can in every single second of a race. And that's just not what it looks like. That is not a practical reality. And so for this, I'm going to give you an analogy of boxing. In boxing, you might have a situation where a fighter gets punched and steps back because of it or gets punched and gets knocked down because of it and then gets back up. And there are moments in that bout where they look like they're reeling because of the circumstances, because of the impact, the force of that competition and of that battle. And while we don't have necessarily a real foe when we're inside the security fencing at a race and no one, fortunately, is throwing punches at us, the marathon, the half marathon, the 5K is throwing its own punches. It might cause us to, for a moment, reel back. It might cause us to have a moment where we get knocked down walk for a little bit, but quickly recover and get back on doing what we can do. And so I want to call out and label the fact that triumph doesn't, as it relates to giving your all, doesn't look like giving your all in in every single moment as we think about it. It's just about when you get punched, always giving, getting back up, always stepping back into the fight, always giving what you have in response to that finish line. And so don't beat yourself up over those little moments where you think, oh man, I could have run a few seconds faster there. I I let up for just a bit. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about giving your all. You responding to that, you having that moment where you reeled and or got knocked down and then got back on it. That is a picture, a crystal clear picture of giving your all. And so claim that as triumph. There's also the triumph of progress, the victory of progress. And this probably fits under the category of moral victories maybe, but I'm going to call it out as separate and distinct. But there's the triumph of progress. And I think oftentimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for how far we've come We don't necessarily step back and say, man, 
look what I've been able to accomplish because we're so focused on the narrow gains within a specific window or a specific training cycle. But take moments throughout your years, and I think it's especially important in front of, not after, but in front of races, to think about how far you've come, to claim the triumph of progress, because all of us who've been going at this for months, years, you will see if you're working hard, you're going to see leaps and bounds growth. And when that comes, it's to be celebrated. It's magical. And so that's another form of triumph, of victory. And as I get through those labels, those are some that I've experienced, some that I've seen others experience. I want you to, again, reflect on maybe some versions of that that you've experienced in your life and give yourself the ability to think outside that definition of total victory and maybe claim victory from some of your past experiences that you hadn't previously claimed. And so as I get into now, how do we process triumph? Then I want to talk about it because I think to our fault, sometimes we are too quick to move over it. We're too quick to skip to the next thing. As hardworking type A endurance athletes, oftentimes when we have victory, even total victory, we refuse to properly celebrate it and then we're on to the next. And so I believe it within my core as a coach that it's so important to pause, to reflect, and to celebrate triumph in all of its forms. And so that's my first tip for you here celebrate triumph in all of its forms. And that could look like you reflecting now on some some triumphs that you hadn't claimed in the past that you should claim. It could mean taking the opportunity to celebrate the triumph of a recent race that you haven't appropriately celebrated. Celebration is going to look different for everybody, but to me that's recognizing it yourself, labeling it as triumph, celebrating it in whatever form it seems appropriate to you. And that's going to come in a lot of different forms. And perhaps most importantly, sharing that triumph with others. So don't forget to stop, to pause, to label the triumph, just like you would label and observe pain and then experience it, celebrate that victory when it comes. Or go back and have a celebration for past triumphs that you didn't claim. Another point here, which is related, is this idea that sometimes we struggle to celebrate triumph when there's a duality or maybe a plurality of emotions and feelings. Oftentimes, probably more often than not, pain and triumph come together. Total victory is rare to claim, as I mentioned, but There will be situations where you can celebrate the triumph of giving your all on race day while also labeling and experiencing and grieving the pain of not getting your specific goal on that day. That's the yin and the yang of our sport. That's one thing that draws us to it. And it's possible for those two things to coexist in your mind. And yet we fight that duality all the time. We fight it 
so hard. We think it has to be all or nothing. And I think part of that perhaps is an artifact of our world that has shifted us into polarized camps that refuse to allow space for the gray. But in this case, it's not actually gray. It's just being able to say that you can simultaneously claim triumph while simultaneously experiencing labeling and grieving pain that you may experience in a race. And so embrace that duality because more often than not, that's what you'll see. The last thing I'll mention here that I want you to think about whether you do it physically or whether you just make mental notes is this idea of recognizing your gratitude for these triumphs. Kara Goucher and Dina Castor in their books talk about having a gratitude journal, being able, even on the worst of training days or in the worst of races, to dig into it and pull out even the smallest of victories and claim gratitude for that. And to me, that is a practice that pays it forward. That is a practice that pays this idea of claiming victory forward that starts to reprogram your mind to focus less on the what if negatives and focus more on the what if positives. And so I would encourage you, if you don't have one, to start a gratitude journal for training, for racing. And even if you don't have a physical one, make sure you're making those mental notes. And it's something that you have to practice all the time. After workouts, even the worst of workouts, after runs, even the worst of runs, think about, note, journal if you're willing, something you can be thankful for, a small victory in the context of that pain or that quote loss, and then do the same for races. And some of these will be tiny, tiny things. Some of these will be just acknowledging that you showed up. Some of these will be acknowledging that you did something simple right, even if the rest of everything went wrong, like taking your gels on time, for example, in a marathon. Maybe the race went to total disaster, but you executed your nutrition plan as planned. And even if the race didn't go the way you wanted, you can claim gratitude for that practice of executing what you had planned to do. And so big or small, training or racing, Make it a practice to journal, to note, to carry with you those positive things, the triumphs, the things you can be thankful for because it will reprogram your mind towards a positive direction to a willingness to claim those triumphs that may not look like triumphs on the surface, which is going to give you energy and a positive ethos that's going to help you smash big goals down the road. Highly recommend Dina's book, Let Your Mind Run. She talks about that in spades in the context of her journey. Kara talks about it often in her book, Strong, which is basically a gratitude journal. And so you can look to elites for for examples of that. But I encourage you to start that practice in some form claim the triumphs be thankful for the little victories and the big victories and so that's it there you go just spent about 50 minutes talking about the two feelings perhaps that we feel the most in our sport pain and triumph 
maybe I lost you, but I hope you're still with me and I hope you'll be willing to take some of the steps that I mentioned to label these things, to recognize them for what they are, and then to open the dialogue to others, to your teammates, to your friends, to listening to it, perhaps in elites when they share their experiences via podcasts or interviews, because I promise you, we are all connected regardless of pace, regardless of degree of fast, regardless of backgrounds. We are all connected by some core feelings and emotions that we're all going to feel in various forms. And there is so much magic in that. And I'll have more episodes talking about it as we go. So glad to be back with you. Thank you for listening to episode 258. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at roguerunning. I'll be talking next week about our podcast, virtual podcast group opening back up in the new year. So stay tuned for that. I will talk to you then.